uh, Charles Goodhart, who normally uh, chairs these proceedings of the uh, regulation seminar of FNG, has asked me to step in. Charles is uh, traveling. It's our great pleasure today to have um, Gary Gensler, um, uh, who is the chairman of the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission in the United States, as you all know. Um, and uh, Gary is going to talk to us about global reform of the derivatives market. Um, a, the CFTC has been uh, on the line for implementation of the uh, Dodd-Frank Act uh, and uh, is active in developing rules and, uh, and this is uh, getting quite a bit of discussion in the United States. But as we know, uh, there have been a lot of regulatory initiatives in Europe uh, and uh, the question of Harmonization of, uh, of, of rulemaking is, uh, is, a, is a difficult topic and a lively topic. So, um, just uh, a word about uh, Mr. Gensler's uh, background. He's been in public service basically for the last decade or so. Um, in one capacity or another, he was uh, in the, the U.S. Treasury in various functions uh, in the Clinton administration. Um, then he was actively involved in the development of uh, um, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, working with Paul Sarbanes uh, and his staff. Um, and since 2009, he's been at the CFTC. So um, I understand that uh, Gary is going to have, uh, he says 17 minutes, but I have a feeling it's going to be a bit longer than that, of prepared remarks, and then he'll be open for Q&A. Well, I, I, I want to thank um, uh, Ron for that kind introduction, uh, LSE for allowing me to speak here today and inviting me. Uh, it, it's, it's quite an honor to, uh, uh, to speak here um, in in London. I'm actually here for a conference tomorrow with a group of international regulators. We're going to be talking about uh, high-frequency trading, which will not be really the topic of my talk, but I guess if you wish, you'll ask me a question or two about that. I'm also here to talk and to coordinate with uh, uh, regulators here in London and market participants about uh, reform of the derivatives marketplace or what we in the United States calls the swaps marketplace. Um, it's a bit of pride to actually speak here at LSE also because the last time I was here was actually 34 years ago. <laughs> it was a different building. Uh, it's longer ago than some of your age. Uh, but my identical twin brother, Rob, went to LSE for a year, a sort of junior year abroad. I don't know what he really studied, and it might have been much time in the pub. But uh, enough on Rob. Uh, um, it's um, uh, been three years since the financial crisis, and I'm going to talk a bit on derivatives. That's really it. But uh, it's been three years since the financial crisis in the United States, and uh, I think it's clear to anyone who's looked at it that uh, the financial system failed. It failed in America. It failed here. But also the regulatory system itself uh, failed. So many people in Europe and the United States who had never had a connection to these uh, uh, contracts called derivatives, and I'll talk a little bit about those in a minute, uh, or any other exotic contract had their lives hurt by the risks that were taken on in this uh, marketplace by financial actors. And the effects of the crisis remain, um, and they're very real in the U.S. and in Europe, where we still have high unemployment, homes that are worth less than their mortgages, pension funds that are still have not recognized the value that they once had. And we still have a significant uncertainty in the financial system in the U.S. and even greater uncertainty here in Europe. And though there were many causes of the crisis, uh, no doubt, um, many causes, it's evidence that swaps, or what, again, you all might call off-exchange derivatives here, uh, played a central role. Uh, swaps uh, added leverage to the financial system with more risk backed by less capital. They also contributed, uh, particularly through something called credit default swaps, to the bubble in our housing market in the United States with a lot of tiering and exotic products on top. They contributed to a system where large institutions, which were once thought too big to fail, because a bank might be so big if it came down it would hurt an economy, uh, they also started to coin this phrase, too interconnected to fail. Who would have thought? But a new phrase because the swaps connected the businesses. Uh, if we had any need for evidence, we can think right here in London. There was a company called AIG Financial Products. 
I was an affiliate of a U.S. insurance company, in fact, the largest insurance company in the United States, uh, but its main business was here in London, also in Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, but when it failed, uh, the sobering fact of the matter is that U.S. taxpayers put up $180 billion. When I give speeches there, I note that it's $600 for everybody in the audience. Um, it's just math. Um, look, I think that because I'm an LSE, I'm speaking to a lot of uh, converts to the p point of view I'm about to express. Markets work best when they are transparent, open, and competitive. Why? Why? Uh, is that. I mean, we've had the benefits in the United States of well-regulated markets since the 1930s in something called the futures market and something called the securities market. President Roosevelt actually went to our Congress in the 1930s and asked for two regulators uh, to address the manipulation and excessive speculation in the securities market. So you know we have this thing called the Securities and Exchange Commission. But he also addressed himself to the commodities markets. And derivatives started in the United States. I'm going off script, so you have to give me more than the 17 minutes now. But derivatives started in the United States in the 1860s when uh, folks in the grain markets wanted to lock in a price. It's, um, do we have small animals crawling around or no? Oh, it's the head of the FMG. Head of, head of the FMG. Um, but very simply put, what is a derivative? What is a swap or a future? It is an opportunity for somebody to lock in the price or rate of something. It started with people growing corn and wheat, and they wanted to lock in the price at harvest time. Very simple concept. But they didn't want to necessarily have to deliver the corn or wheat. And so somebody invented this thing called a futures contract. It was a variation on something earlier used, a forward contract. Forwards have existed since uh, antiquity uh, in Greek and Roman times. That means you're actually delivering the product. But here you didn't have to deliver the product, but you could lock in the price uh, at a later date. Um, fast forward to the 1980s, and a new product called swaps was invented. Uh, and it was to hedge mostly financial risk in the interest rate markets. I wanted to lock in an interest rate. I wanted to lock in a currency rate. Um, I didn't necessarily want to borrow money, by the way, but I just wanted to lock in the interest rate. And that market grew. Um, the Dodd-Frank Act uh, passed last year in Congress because the swaps market really did contribute to the uh, calamitous results we had in 2008. The, um, the, um, and for the first time brought oversight to this swaps market. The futures market in the United States has been regulated since the 1930s, as I said. The swaps market was not regulated in the United States, not in Europe, not in Asia. There was a sort of a global consensus that this, this market was a bank market. It, it didn't really have to be regulated, or it was only large and sophisticated players, and it would in some ways take care of itself uh, and, and, and have some self-discipline. Or, in fact, maybe we were regulating the bank somewhere, and that would uh, contain this thing. Well, in fact, all of those assumptions and others uh, proved to be uh, uh, assumptions that were uh, uh, not good. I don't know what an economist say, not valid, I guess if I remember some of this. Um, and so Congress moved forward, and they asked the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and the Securities and Exchange Commission to oversee this market. And in essence, what the Act does is three main things, but lots of details. One, it brings transparency to the swaps market, similar to the securities and futures market before it. And it does that by requiring, after the trade, reporting of the trade. We call it real-time reporting. You might call it post-trade transparency on the price and volume. And before the trade transparency, that some of this comes to the market or pre-trade transparency. And we have a term it would come to something called a swap execution facility. Second thing, it helps lower risk by saying that the swaps have to be cleared in a central clearinghouse. That, that's an innovation, by the way, of the 1890s which I'll get to in a little bit. And thirdly, it says the dealers themselves, usually large banks, sometimes large oil companies, but the dealers themselves have to be regulated for capital and margin in other ways. Now, in Europe, you're doing something similar. Uh, there's something called the European Market Infrastructure Regulation that's wending its way through uh, Parliament and the European Council and the European Commission. Uh, 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 it goes by shorthand, Amir. Uh, the U.S. law and Amir both would cover the entire uh, product suite. Uh, this is 
uh, swaps on interest rates, currencies, commodities, and equities, credit default swaps that have been talked about so much. And it also covers both those that are traded on exchanges or cleared and those that are bilateral, that are just between two uh, parties. The Dodd-Frank also uh, has essential reforms to bring um, uh, the transparency that I s just spoke about. Um, and again, speaking to economists, the more transparent a marketplace is, the more liquid, the more competitive it is. And when markets are open and transparent, price competition is facilitated. It means more people can come in and bid away some of those uh, spreads. It lowers costs to the companies that use these products and ultimately the people that stand behind those products. In the United States alone, there's a $300 trillion swaps market. That means there's $20 of swaps for every dollar in our economy. So if we just narrow the spread on those uh, derivatives just a little bit, it helps the economy throughout and all the customers throughout. Um, I think about filling up a tank of gas these days at whatever it is, 60 or 70 U.S. dollars, and think, well, maybe behind it there might be $1,400 of swaps somewhere in our economy uh, uh, b behind it. Um, while the derivatives marketplace has changed significantly since swaps came into being in the 1980s, a constant has been that financial institutions um, really maintain an information advantage. So whether it's Wall Street or the City of London, when a bank enters into a derivative transaction with a corporation, the bank knows how much uh, its other customers are willing to pay for the similar transaction. Um, that information, however, is not generally uh, made available to the public. The bank benefits from internalizing uh, this information. Uh, in essence, there's an asymmetry. They have the information, the market does not. The Dodd-Frank Act, though, says that swaps transactions that are standard enough to be cleared uh, um, and also um, those that are not cleared have to have transparency after the trade. Price and volume out as soon as technologically practicable. But also, if it's traded, um, uh, it should be traded in a transparent central place, electronically most likely, but in a central place. In Europe, uh, the uh, European Commission will address the public transparency requirements later, not in this EMIR, but in something later called the Markets and Financial Instruments Directive or MIFID reform. I think it's a critical when this reform does uh, take place, that it have a strong requirement that standardized swaps be traded on exchanges or similar swap execution facilities, have true pre-trade transparency. I think it's critical that it has the post-trade transparency as well. Um, we're making progress, but uh, I think in the United States we're probably a little ahead in time uh, on these transparency uh, initiatives. The um, uh, the Dodd-Frank Act also includes transparency to regulators. In Europe, this is very similar. Amir has this, that the transactions would have to be reported to something called a data repository. But that's so the regulators can have the information. This is very important, not only that we have a window into the market, which we do not have right now, neither in Europe or the United States do regulators really have a window into the market, but also so there can be an effective cop on the beat. Uh, that we can police for fraud and manipulation and so forth. The second major reform I talked about is clearing. Um, clearing, again, from the 1890s. Um, clearing houses have functioned in uh, tough times through two world wars, through the Depression, through tough crises. Um, and uh, what they actually do is they stand between two counterparties. And uh, if either counterparty defaults, uh, they uh, fulfill the transaction uh, as, as if the party that defaulted was still there. Um, now, when a customer does not clear a transaction, they take on the bank's credit risk. So you have a choice. Central clearing, you don't take on a bank's credit risk. Clear transactions. Uh, you're protected in case the bank fails. And that's why it lowers systemic risk to bring as much of this into central clearing. And we've seen over many decades that uh, banks do fail. And as sure as I'm standing here at LSE, and hopefully I come back before 34 more years, um, banks, th there will be other banks that will fail. 
Uh, I mean, in Europe, we've just seen this in the last week. Uh, I don't know if we call that a failure, but uh, certainly a bank that has to be supported by central governments. Um, and what does central clearing uh, do? It basically, on a daily basis, values the transaction, and on a daily basis says that one party or the other has to put up money, it's called collateral or margin, to support in case they go belly up, they go under. It's a simple concept from about 120 years ago, but it has to be well-regulated, of course. And under Dodd-Frank, all clearable swaps, whether they're done on an exchange or off, are subject to this clearing requirement. And, and the, there is some debate here in Europe whether to uh, cover the on-exchange swaps. We do think that it's very important to have the same scope as we're having in the United States to cover the on-exchange swaps as well as off-exchange uh, swaps uh, in this clearing requirement. But I'm encouraged by some of the work done by the European Council, but I know that they have to go in and negotiate with the European Parliament and, and just as we did uh, in the United States, uh, come to some resolution and compromise. Thirdly is the regulation of the dealers themselves. You can think of the banks uh, generally in this. And Dodd-Frank included uh, significant reforms there as well. It did not just assume that because it's a bank, it's well-regulated, uh, uh, proof positive, as the system did fail back in 08. And though EMIR is organized differently, it does have many of the important uh, features uh, of what we're have in the United States, including that the, the, the dealer has to have sufficient capital and margin for uh, protecting the transactions, and something called risk mitigation techniques. Um, one of the lessons of the financial crisis was that dealers were insufficiently prepared for the losses they could take on if their swap counterparty was to fail. That was most obvious in AIG, but it was not isolated to AIG. Capital requirements for the students in the room, just so I do my little teaching moment. Capital requirements help protect the public by lowering the risk of a dealer's failure. Margin, on the other hand, is that which you collect from the counterparty or that the bank pays the counterparty. Uh, so it sort of protects both ways, the dealers and the customers, in volatile times or uncertain times if there's some default. Both are important. Uh, in, in America, we do not just rely on one regime, but both are mandated in statute. Now, I think it's important that we work with European regulators and around the globe to align these. They're in EMIR, and once EMIR passes, one of the things that we'll be working with through international coordination with IOSCO, which is this international securities regulators, and Basel Committee of Banking Supervisors, is to try to align margin requirements uh, so that we have harmonization as best we can uh, across the uh, uh, two continents. Um, the um, Dodd-Frank also allows us to write business conduct standards to make sure that the, the banks are well managed or the dealers are well managing their risk and that they have things, there's this boring stuff in the back office that matters, but documentation, confirmations, and so forth and to protect against fraud and manipulation. I, I want to say just a word on our coordination here in Europe and, and elsewhere. We've been actively consulting and coordinating with regulators. And, and just as we do domestically, we actually share our memos. We've been sending uh, term sheets and memos over to Europe since, I guess, last September. Jackie Mace is the head of our international, and I should have introduced Andre Karolinko as our chief economist. And if anybody wants to talk about high-frequency trading. He's, he's the man that's got that one. Um, uh, but uh, as we share these documents and so forth, we get a lot of feedback and we narrow differences and so forth. Um, we've also been meeting regularly with uh, European leaders. Uh, I've met with Michel Barnier, who's a commissioner at the European Commissioner for Internal Markets. That was title right, yeah. Um, numerous times, and it's been a true partnership and a true partnership with uh, uh, the European Securities Market Authority as well. Um, as part of our implementation efforts, we're going to be working with international colleagues on memorandums of understanding and something called cooperative oversight. We have a long history at the CFTC of what we call mutual recognition agreements. I think here they're called just uh, foreign regulatory uh, regime recognition. 
but the substance of it is we're a small agency, about 700 people, not that much bigger than we were in the 1990s, maybe 10% uh, bigger. We need to be a lot larger. But so we like uh, partnering up with foreign regulators where we can. And our statute, Dodd-Frank says, if something is comparable and comprehensive, two key words, comparable and comprehensive, we can defer or rely on that foreign regulatory regime. So as Amir is being completed, as MIFID is being completed, we're hopeful that we can find that it's comparable and comprehensive along the various chapter headings. It won't be one big decision, but it will be sort of by key, you know, clearing capital margin and along the line. Um, the uh, CFTC is working with international regulators. This IOSCO uh, organization that I mentioned earlier. Um, interestingly, IOSCO is actually restructuring this coming year, and we're hopeful that uh, given our new roles and in this world, that uh, we might actually get ordinary membership. This little commodities regulator is not even an ordinary member. There's 170 worldwide ordinary members. We're just making my little pitch here that maybe we can be an ordinary <laughs> member. But then again, maybe some people wouldn't want a regulator that oversees $340 trillion part of IOSCO. No, I'm kidding around a little bit. Hopefully, we'll, they'll let us in. Um, look, in conclusion, um, the 21st century of finance knows no geographic borders or boundaries. You can push a, a, a click of a mouse, a touch of a button, and capital and risk goes around the globe. It's just what it is. I started in finance in 1979. It wasn't the case. It was pre-internet, of course. Um, moreover, the U.S. and European financial systems are interconnected. They have many linkages, many, many linkages. One of those key linkages is in the swaps marketplace, and that's why this reform is so critical. And, and, and just to take a second on the current debt crisis in Europe, and I'm not going to tell you anything you can't read in the newspapers, but um, this is not a debt crisis just of sovereign nations. It's also a debt crisis of the banks and a funding uh, crisis of, of the banks and of s certain sovereigns. It's a stark reminder of our interconnectedness. It's leading the news in the United States as well, and as it well should uh, often. Uh, and at a time when many uh, market participants are taking a critical look at their exposures to bank, they continue to bear credit exposure to the banks through their uncleared swaps. If, they, if they're a customer of a bank and they're doing a swap, central clearing is essential to protect those bank customers as much as to protect the taxpayers. Moreover, it's precisely in times of crisis periods like this, heightened market uncertainty, the transparent pricing is essential. It's even more valuable in periods of uncertainty because it helps to lower some of the uncertainty premium that it has to be priced in. So while European leaders are working to avert a deepening crisis, it's also critical that we each implement regulatory reform in the global uh, swaps market to do our bit to lower risk and to promote transparency. And as such, I think effective reform cannot be accomplished by one nation alone. It will require comprehensive international response. And with uh, the significant of the majority of the worldwide swaps markets here in Europe and in the U.S., some estimate upwards to 85% between the two continents, the effectiveness of reform really will depend on our partnership together. And I think we have a true partnership, though we have different cultures and political systems. Uh, that we work together and cooperate and generally find consensus. So I thank you. I'll take questions. I went over 17, but hopefully we have enough time to take us a bunch of questions. And, and I'm going to have a press avail uh, as well, so if I can take questions from students and faculty and whomever else uh, FMG normally invites, but I'll, I'll certainly take all the questions from the press uh, at the end. If there's, you know, if that's all right. Actually, you made a comment about interconnectedness uh, in the swaps market. Of course, um, one of the markets that is probably the most interconnected of all is the FX market, which um, you're not going to be significantly regulating, I believe. Is that, do you have a view on that? Uh, I have a view as, what's your first name? Uh, Tony Thompson. Tony, thank you. Um, Tony, the... Um, uh, 
the FX market is rather interconnected, as you say. Um, and our, our U.S. Congress moved forward and said that if you enter into a, a foreign currency swap, it has to be uh, reported to the data repositories and that the dealers still have to have some business conduct standards uh, around their risk management and so forth. It did give the Treasury Secretary uh, the right to determine that maybe not to bring it into, in essence, the other provisions, the central clearing uh, or the mandatory trading. And that's something the Secretary has uh, moved forward on. He's not finalized yet. Um, but I think that there are, there are key protections uh, of the reporting to the regulators that will still be in place and also uh, the business conduct standards, as I mentioned. Could I ask you, when you ask your questions, to introduce yourself and if there's an organization that you're affiliated with uh, that, that organization? Uh, Tim. Uh, I'm Tim Frost. I'm proud to be a governor here at the LSE and also a market practitioner. Oh, my God. So thanks very much for coming to school. How many governors are there? <laughs> oh, there are quite a few governors, I assure you. 600 governors? <laughs> That's more than we have in the United States. If you'd like to be a governor, I'm sure we could. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. But, but, but I'd be honored, but maybe, maybe you know, I can't, I can't accept such honors. Um, is, can, is there such a thing as too much international coordination? So work uh, done in this parish by uh, Professor Charles Goodhart, Abernational Sound, um, latterly uh, work by Andy Haldane at the Bank of England have focused on the potential negative consequences of everyone acting the same way. And when I think about regulation and I, I, I hear the uh, uniform cry for regulatory standardisation across the, across the globe, I worry that the same regulation will um, have the unintended consequence of getting everyone to behave the same way in particular circumstances. And that work, if I, I'm very risky putting words in the in the mouth of Professor uh, Goodhart, but that work makes me think that that would make markets more unstable. Should we celebrate differences, regulatory differences? Should we think that different regulatory regimes with different approaches will help us situate towards some wonderful future standard? Or should we um, try and get everyone to do everything the same way? That's an excellent set of questions. I don't normally get it that way. It's normally people are you know, saying let's get it together and bemoaning that the CFTC is, uh, uh, because of this, uh, in the United States it passed first, that we're moving ahead uh, uh, more promptly than elsewhere. Um, I think that it's a tra trade-off, a balancing, uh, but I think on net it's better if we can get uh, particularly risk management standards uh, uh, at least the minimum risk management standards at a certain uniform level. Um, and I think that because capital and risk can, at a click of a button, if the City of London had rules that were, um, uh, let's say, uh, less transparent, uh, they didn't have real-time reporting, didn't have uh, some trading re requirement, um, you might find uh, uh, transactions migrating here to the darker market, so to speak. Uh, some people uh, might think that was good. I, I would not. I think transparency helps markets. I think transparency uh, lowers the cost of the uh, people using these products. Um, uh, but I think also there will be some differences, and there's room for innovation as well. But I think that you, you need some minimums of risk management and transparency. My name is Peter Norman. I'm a um, research in post-trade issues for a small London think tank, the Centre for the Study of Financial Innovation. And also have written books on post-trade issues, including one on clearing this year. So that lengthy preamble. Um, Two quick questions. One, you spoke of the um, fact that the modern financial markets know no frontiers and there is cooperation. What about Asia? Because um, there's clear cases of fragmentation of swaps regulation going on there. Every country seems to be wanting to set up its own CCP. And also, I, I do detect a lot of fears 
and in London that there's too much regulation across the pond, as it were, that Singapore and other countries will start um, acting things. And then another quick question, you mentioned how um, CCPs in the US have never failed, I think. Um, they have failed elsewhere and came very close to disaster in Hong Kong in 1987. Um, what work are you doing on resolutionary regimes? And where does that fit in with the sort of global efforts on um, dealing with um, systemically important financial infrastructure? All right, I'll try. It, it reminds me of appearing in front of the European Parliament when, when members of Parliament ask five questions and say it was just one, <laughs> or say it was two. Um, uh, on uh, uh, Asia, uh, we, we are making good progress, and, and uh, we, we, we get together uh, often with our uh, counterparts in Asia. It's not as far along as here in Europe, and there's really a very real commitment uh, uh, at the highest levels of the European Commission and I think at the governments to get this done here. Uh, and as I say, estimates are there's some 80 or 85 percent of the markets between the two of us, uh, the two continents at least. Uh, Canada is making good progress. Japan actually passed the first law on central clearing and data reporting, and they'll they'll probably be done with that by the end of 2012. They don't have the transparency initiatives that I mentioned. Um, you um, you asked about uh, central clearing and fragmentation. Uh, we at the CFTC are uh, fine with a clearinghouse being anywhere around the globe, uh, and that U.S. parties can use it. It has to be well regulated. It has to have certain risk standards. Uh, but we're not one that uh, thinks that there should be geographic or locational mandates because that does lead to fragmentation and higher costs when you can't bring some of that in. Uh, about clearinghouses failing, we uh, we're aware of Hong Kong. I think it was after the '87 market crash, um, and also one in France. And I can't remember the third one, but there was a third one. Which was it? The Paris sugar market, but what was the third one? Malaysia. Malaysia. Palm oil. Palm oil. Um, and though there's probably much more for me to study uh, about it and learn about all three, I think it's really critical that the clearinghouses, uh, of course, have vigorous risk management by marking the positions to market every day and actually accept bringing in collateral, having uh, enough initial margin as well, and then the whole waterfall of, of of risk management behind that. We're hopeful next Tuesday to take up uh, our risk management uh, rules, final rules, and uh, there's this international principles, again out of this international organization called IOSCO, that um, I, I, I believe will be up to snuff on. Critical in a clearinghouse is that the contracts they clear have some liquidity and reliable pricing. And that actually – that is another reason why it's important to have transparency. The more transparent a marketplace, the lower you – the risk of the clearinghouse. If you're relying on three or four or even ten dealers for pricing, the clearinghouse has more risk than if you can see the pricing real-time after the trade. You mentioned post-trade transparency, so I was trying to tie that in. I don't know if I got all your questions, but hopefully enough of them. Thank you, Chairman. My name is Barry Schwein, and I'm with Morgan Stanley. Um, I have a question around uh, the time frames on uh, the Roosevelt I'm sorry, the time frames on what? The, uh, the time frames, your, your thoughts on the time frames on the Roosevelt extraterritoriality and on the, and on the definition of this person. Any, any thoughts on that? What's the second one, definition of? Of U.S. person. Oh. So the, the question is timing around this topic of uh, who is a U.S. Uh, customer. I, I've used a different phrase than person. Um, our s statute uh, is very clear uh, that we're not to cover something unless, it's one of those sort of negatives, unless uh, – uh, the transaction I'm, – I'm paraphrasing – but the transaction has a direct – I think it's transaction or activity. It might be – it's activity. So unless the activity has a direct or significant effect on the commerce or activity in the U.S. So activity has direct or significant effect on commerce or activity in the U.S. Um, 
We think that's probably pretty clear to most people, but uh, to get some guidance on it, we, we are going to probably seek some uh, public comment. I don't know exactly when. I'd be hopeful later this year, this calendar year, and put it out and get some feedback from people. Of course, what some folks, whether it's from Morgan Stanley or others, are sort of saying is, well, if, if a German bank does a transaction with a German insurance company, is that something you'd cover? Probably not. That's, that's uh, probably not a direct and significant effect on U.S. commerce or activities therein. Uh, but if a U.S. bank happened to be in London doing transactions with a U.S. hedge fund that happens to be in London, is that covered? Uh, well, we'll see, but probably yes. But then Morgan Stanley and others would say, well, probably not. And that, that's what public comment is, you know, and we'll, we'll go back and forth, particularly if the transaction's guaranteed by the parent in New York. You know, and you have all sorts of fact patterns and so forth. So we'll tease that out by getting more public comment on these matters. Uh, my name is Professor Michael Dempster from the University of Cambridge. Uh, I would I, I've like heard of that. To speculate um, on how much, when all the regulation settles down globally, hopefully, I agree with you, it should be uh, informal. Uh, how, much of, how much do you think of the, what is it now, 620 plus trillion notional of derivative products will actually be cleared? an excellent question. Um, some of it will be determined by the clearinghouses themselves. But um, we're going to note that today in the interest rate market, uh, there's a clearinghouse right here in London that clears a significant portion of the, s the transactions between dealers, dealers to dealers. Uh, the Bank of International Settlement uh, estimates that dealer-to-dealer -dealer transactions are somewhere around a third or 35 percent of the market. But under Dodd-Frank, the dealer-to-financial institutions have to come in. That's about 55 percent of the market. So about 90, 91 percent of the swaps market is between financials and financials or financials and dealers. I think of that 91 percent, then the question is, what portion of that can come in? And in the interest rate market, a very significant portion probably. Um, uh, I'm going to get a little detailed here. This, the straight swaps in the euro, in the sterling, in the yen, and the U.S. dollar out to 30 years and sometimes out to 50 years is currently cleared at, at this clearinghouse right here. Um, in the commodity space, energy swaps are pretty successfully cleared by two large clearinghouses in the U.S. and one here. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the folks in Chicago and Atlanta and here. And so um, uh, I'll leave it to market researchers to estimate the exact numbers, but uh, it's, it's likely to be well over half, but it's probably not the full 90 percent because some of that doesn't have the liquidity aspects, some of that doesn't have the pricing aspects uh, that, that could come in. Well, the reason I ask the question is because I've had heard contradictory data. It's been said to me that, take the, the least estimate, 30% of derivatives are bought and 70% are sold. <laughs> uh, now, you know, supply doesn't seem to equal demand. And the point is that that was an estimate of actually interbank trading, the 30%, and also, of course, with major corporates like oil companies, power generators, and so on and so on, who have technical staff who can do what they, you know, can assess risks, fairly price, maybe shop around amongst the few dealers there are, and so on. Uh, but the other 70% was the estimate. Um, is sold to people who really don't know what they're doing, and they've lost a lot of money. And these include, of course, financial institutions, as we know from some of the products you were talking about, three, four years ago, based on credit, were bought by German and other European institutions. They're still on their books. Um, there have been estimates between, say, three and ten trillion as positive mark-to-market on, say, the leading 20 swap dealers in the, in the world, in using American terms, swaps. Um, that worries me, and I'm wondering if you're addressing this, because most of the regulation, I mean, of course, if it's 90% is all interbank and sophisticated traders, then there's not too much to worry about. But 
My personal experience is not that. Well, I, I'm not sure what the kernel of the question is, but is there something to worry about? Yes. We, the markets are not yet getting the benefit of our Dodd-Frank or getting the benefit of wherever Amir lands. The, the markets are not getting that benefit yet. They're starting to grow into it. People are anticipating market behavior starting to change, but it's really not there yet. We need to finish our roles, and I think it's really uh, critical uh, here in Europe that Amir is finished and implemented. Um, once it is implemented, I think there will be a significant portion of the market. I don't know the exact percent, uh, but I think it will be over half, and though not the 90 percent. Uh, that will come into central clearing, particularly in interest rates. The interest rate market is probably 80% of that 600 billion number, or 600 trillion. And, and the interest rate market is, uh, uh, right now, the proof positive of clearability as it's being cleared uh, right here in London, uh, the largest clearinghouse. Yes, Thomas, one, Tom, Tom, wait, wait, Dow Jones, Press Avail. Avail. You'll get it. You'll get it. I just want to make sure if there's... I've got a question. Um, Lance Zugla. I'm a market, global markets head of two Canadian banks that uh, traded a lot of... Uh, wow, you get two Canadian banks at once? Uh, <laughs> one after the other. Ten, ten years oh, 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 I didn't know if they were both paying you. <laughs> I mean, that would be kind of cool. Now they're customers because I head up a, a company that I founded called Market Group. Oh, so they both are paying you. Uh, they are. Yeah. Um, I guess one thing I worry about as an ex-global markets head is the amount of liquidity. Obviously, the, the wholesale side of the banks provide a lot of liquidity and pricing into the huge amount of derivatives that are out there. And, you know, really the, the transparency that, you know, you try to create post-trade, you know, have a company that uh, consolidates that, that information, it, that, that liquidity is on such a small portion of the total outstanding. Um, you know, if you had... 620 trillion of swaps outstanding. Obviously, it would take decades to try to trade all of that. Um, and that liquidity and the transparency is that last price. So we really rely on these financial institutions to be there in the future, to be able to continue to manage the liquidity needed for corporates, uh, retail, mortgage markets, a whole bunch of things that financial institutions actually, on the vanilla side, have done historically quite well. Um, I know a lot of the U.S. institutions, and uh, followed by many of the Europeans, uh, got carried away in the structured markets. But those vanilla derivative markets also serve some pretty important uh, purposes. And, and I just do worry that over-regulation scares these banks out of these markets and you can already see it, high unemployment, no lending. There's a whole another kind of five to ten years of issues. No. You don't worry about it. I worry about... I worry about that if we don't get this done, European public and American public still is at risk. We, we failed collectively. The financial systems failed. Eight million Americans are still out of work that had no no connection to these exotic pro product, yeah, products. Yeah, I agree with you on the exotic side, but that a lack of oversight or regulation or exactly. I think this cost benefit analysis side. is kind of so heavily weighted one way <laughs> that that uh, look some dealers' economics may change. They, 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 it might change if if you if you took one basis point, which is one one hundredth of one percent out of a three hundred trillion dollar marketplace, that would lower the margin. You know, I'm, I don't know what it would, but one basis point, you can do the arithmetic. It's thirty billion U.S. dollars. Uh, well, but that means all of corporate America would get some benefit. Usually we say that's a good thing to lower the cost of corporate America. But here are some people are saying, well, I'm a little worried about those banks in New York. Uh, I mean, it, it will but shift. It will shift some. It will shift some of the. It will. No, no, uh, I understand. So here is a natural tension. There's a natural tension between a market regulator, like the SEC or CFTC, and maybe a bank regulator. Market regulators like me have a job to make sure markets are open, competitive, transparent, free of fraud and abuse and so forth, but that they really do serve in a price discovery method where everybody gets to come in there and, and margins collapse. 
and liquidity is steep. Some bank bankers like might want their profit margins higher. Um, I don't think that's what Dodd Frank said to do. Dodd Frank didn't say to take any profits away, but it said bring transparency, lower risk, and and ensure that the American public doesn't stand behind this uh, again. Um, so I mean. Last one, or I don't know, maybe two more. Oh my God, Brian, where do you work? Did you say? Market participant. <laughs> You're just a market participant. Yes. Great, great. Uh, but, uh, thank you for your do you know it's me and not my twin brother? <laughs> I think it was you. Uh, and seeing the other commissioners. Uh, All right. Very good to see them, basically. And I applaud you all for transparency, actually. Thank you. That's correct. That's correct. I think we've seen inconsistency, unfortunately, between some of your proposed regulations and the CSEC's proposed regulations. And that's concerning. Yeah. So how do we get, how about you U.S. compensation rather than global compensation? Um, excellent question. The SEC and CFTC are in partnership, and Mary Shapiro and I talk often, and the staffs share all the memos, and we sort through these things. Um, as you noted, we probably have... 90 to 95% of the notional value because of the large interest rate commodities, and they have the uh, the single name and narrow-based CDS market, uh, though we, we actually ended up with the indexes. So, um, uh, What we've done is we work together on the proposals, and then when we get comments in, we work together and see how we can bring it together. One thing that constrains us a bit we have historical differences between the oversight of what we call futures and the oversight of securities. Remember back to President Roosevelt in the 1930s, my little story? Well, over 70 or 80 years, there's some things that have grown up a little differently. And, of course, the interest rate swap market is a little different than the credit default swap market as well. We're conscious of not undermining the futures market. They appropriately don't want to undermine the securities market. So we're going to try to narrow any differences that are out there, but there still may be some because we don't want to undermine the futures market. Um, over here. Hey, Roy. Uh, I might have been referring to you all earlier, you know. Thank you very much. This is more a comment than a question. just wanted to see your reaction. In your earlier presentation, you differentiated between cleared transactions and non-cleared transactions, uh, saying that a non-cleared transaction is taking place from the bank and, and cleared is different because you've got the trading system backing it into it. And I, I know that you know that's, that's a bit more complicated than that. I just wanted to, to, to get this out. But, um, classically speaking, and certainly in, in the UK and Europe, um, even a clear transaction is still transacting with the dealer the bank and the bank itself is the value of the, the contract with the trading system. And therefore the extent of the protections and safety relies very much on an area that we, we don't have time to get into of segregation, portability, protection of assets. I just wanted to get your view as to whether you know, I'd like to really concentrate on that aspect of it as a, as a trading system. I think uh, what Roy's saying is there's a lot more than just clearing houses, and clearing houses aren't perfect, uh, though they're be I would say they're far better even with the three failures that have happened over the decades in Hong Kong and um, Malaysia and Paris. Um, uh, banks fail m far more often. Just, just I mean, you know, any statistical survey of it. Why is that? Banks are in more businesses. This is one case where diversification might not be the best thing. I mean, they're lending, they're proprietary trading, uh, they might be uh, underwriting, uh, and so forth. A lot of other things. And they're not uh, forced, as you are, on every day to value all the transactions and collect that, that margin. 
But I do agree with you there's some other features that are important. In, in our law, we actually say that customer transactions can only come to a clearinghouse through something called a futures commission merchant. This is, again, something that was set up many decades ago in our regime, where that futures commission merchant has to be sort of a separate it ends up being a separate legal entity and separately capitalized, and that's what's guaranteeing it, even if it's part of a bank as, as pro. You have a little bit different approach in Europe, but so that's one of the features, and I wholeheartedly agree. The segregation issues are very important. We're hopeful in the next several months to finalize some rules on the segregation, uh, and our, our uh, Congress was kind enough to have views on that too uh, and that they're very important, and as you say, portability. But a client clearing model with the FCMs is embedded in our statute. Segregation is embedded. Portability, I don't think, is specifically mentioned in the statute. If it is, you can remind me. But we, we have it in our, in, in our mind and in our rules. So, uh, and actually, you might answer the earlier question. How, what per percentage of the market do you think? There, why don't I just do that? What percentage of the market do you think? You're the largest clearinghouse of swaps in the world. Yeah. So there's an estimate, 70 to 80 percent interest rate swaps from LCH, which is the largest clearer. So, um, so. Um, I thank you all. This has been, uh, I don't even know. All right. So I thank you all. This has been very helpful. I get feedback, too. So it's really uh, terrific. Um, again, I think this is relevant. It's a, it's a narrow topic, but very deep. And... Uh, uh, I'll use the worldwide statistics. If the, the number is correct, that there's a $620 trillion swap market around the globe, that is, um, uh, let's say, that's $12 of swaps for every dollar of goods and services in the global economy. It's $12 of swaps every time. And there's some countries that don't have much uh, swaps market, like China right now, even though they have a little nascent thing starting over there. Um, I so think it's between it, their big four banks, though, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just between their big four banks. I had a meeting with them, actually. I said, you know, 30 years from now. I said, it took us 30 years. This was, my, I, I, this was with their vice premier and some others, the central bank governor. I said, it took us 30 years to debate whether to regulate these. My advice to you is don't take 30 years. <laughs> because, and then I said, because 30 years from now, your swaps market will be bigger than ours. And they looked at me and they said, through the translators, no. And I said, no, 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 actually it will be. It will be. Your economy is likely. It's just, you know, sort of what's predicted. And when it is that big, you will have a swaps market. I said, just learn from us. Uh, this is one where we, we, we would have benefited, I think, uh, from some of the transparency and lower risk earlier. But with that amount of, of sort of global reach, I think it's time to bring some transparency, some risk reduction, to have balance, not to get, get, it, not to get it overly prescriptive, uh, but I think it's really important. And our crisis was uh, certainly evidence of it. I think the, 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 the issues that you're dealing with here in Europe and particularly in the continent right now are just really stark reminders that uh, we, ought, we ought to get the job done. So thank you. Thank you.